needs God? 16 years ago, when the, when the jets flew into the Twin Towers on 9-11, it seemed like a lot of people needed God. Um, churches saw this huge increase in attendance. People were asking questions like, uh, where is God? Does God matter? Does God care when evil happens? What is God doing? And this huge surge in attendance lasted two whole weeks. By the third Sunday, attendance levels were exactly where they had uh, been before the attacks. In the years since, um, it seems that more and more people have turned their backs on church. They're walking away from church. And if you ask them reasons, they'll say things like, well, religion seems kind of irrelevant or religion is boring. And people will say, we need God. We just don't need religion. Um, in 2006, um, a very famous atheist named Richard Dawkins wrote a book called The God Delusion. And here's what he said. Um, his, this is a quote from his book. Go ahead and put that up there. If this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it will be atheists when they put it down. Now, this guy sold 3 million copies of this book in 35 different languages. The next year, a man named Christopher Hitchens, um, he wrote this book called um, God is Not Great. He put a lowercase g, and when he said great, he put uh, an uppercase uh, g. God is not great, how religion poisons everything. And here's the premise of that book. Ready? Religion is the problem. So these atheists, you know, they wrote these books and, and I've got good news and bad news. Good news is not a significant amount of people went to atheism because of these books. The bad news is more and more people turned their backs on religion and walked away from church. In fact, there are so many people that are, that are walking away from a religion that they now have their own name, their own term. It's called nuns, as in none of the above. And the startling fact to me was this. In the United States, 23%, go ahead and put that up there, buddy. 23% in the United States, one in four considers themselves nuns. I'm not affiliated with any religion. Millennials that we just uh, made some joking about, 33%, one in three millennials are nuns. It's not that they're hostile towards religion. They just don't have any use for religion. They're done with it. Um, they're not affiliated with it. And, and really the crazy thing to me, excuse me, I, I had the flu this week and so I'm, I'm getting over it. I'm going to try to mute every time I have to do that. Um, the crazy thing to me is that it's not that atheism is so attractive that people are leaving the church. It's the fact that, that religion is so incredibly unattractive to these people is the reason they turn their backs on it. Many would, many people would say, um, the, Religion and the God that was presented to me, I just find extremely unattractive. They've lost their appeal. And in the United States, the majority of the nuns have left Christianity, not some other religion, Christianity. Now, when you study the life of Jesus, you're going to find that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And he liked them back. So Jesus is not the problem in the Christianity equation. We are, churches are. If you listen to the story of why people left Christianity. So if you come to Christ, that's called your conversion story. If you leave Christianity, that's called a deconversion story. If you listen to deconversion stories, you'll find that they all have one thing in common. None of the reasons that these people leave Christianity have anything to do with Christianity. The misguided ideas they have about Christianity do not come from Christianity. And here's, here's what, this is really why I wanted to do this series is because when you, when you step away from Christianity, 
You step towards something else, and the something else on the other end of the spectrum is atheism. Now, we're going we're gonna to talk about that, and this, this is the main point that's on your listening guide. You can't move away from something without moving towards something else. Can't move away from something without moving towards something else. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a quick overview of atheism, and then we're going to start looking at the real God. And we're going to compare, and we're going to give you the opportunity to decide who's telling the truth. So, the, the, when you talk about atheism, there's something nowadays called new atheism, and we're going to call it atheism 2.0. Alright, so atheism 2.0, let me just give you a quick overview of it. The first tenet, six tenets of atheism. First is the illusion of the mind. Alright, hang on, you're gonna, you're gonna love this. In a world that is all biology, chemistry, and physics, and nothing else, there's no room for the mind. Really, really smart people, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Stephen Hawking, these people believe this. Okay, there's no, there's an illusion of the mind. So when, when Christopher Hitchens, he dis- discovered he had esophageal cancer, he would eventually die from complications from the cancer and from other things that were going on in his life. And, and Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called Mortality, which was basically his journal of him dying through esophageal cancer. He got tired of the doctor saying to him, your body is failing you, your body is failing you. And so he finally says this, this quote, I don't have a body. I am a body. See, if you don't have God, there's no separation of mind and body, soul, and spirit. There's none of that separation. You're one conglomerate. This life is all there is. When you die, there is nothing else. That's a little bit unsettling to me, but that's what they believe that you have an illusion of the mind. Second tenet, illusion of free will. A true atheist believes that there is no such thing as free will or free choice. They believe in something called determinism. Determinism means all of your choices, all of my choices, aren't really choices. They were predetermined. You couldn't help but do whatever you chose to do. Everything is determined. So free choice does not fit in a universe controlled by the laws of physics. So Sam Harris is this guy who he's an author and he's an atheist and he got upset because people were criticizing his writings. And here's what he says. He says, I have no right to criticize my critics. They have no choice in the matter. Everything you've ever done was predetermined. You had no choice. Stephen Hawking believes in determinism. He jokingly once said this, this is this Stephen Hawking's got jokes. Here it is. I've noticed that even people who claim that everything is predestined and that we can do nothing to change it, look before they cross the road. If it's predetermined, why look? I dare, I double dog dare you to try to live as if you're only biology. Try it for 24 hours. If you can get by that long, because eventually if you try to live like you're only biology, other biology going to lock you up. Or they're going to hit you with a car that they're driving. Because all of our choices are predetermined. Right? The illusion of free will. Third tenet. <coughs> Excuse me. The illusion of value. Okay, if you have an illusion of, a, of, a, of your mind, if you have illusion of free choice or free will, there's also an illusion of value. What this means is nobody has any value. You don't have value. I don't have value unless we ascribe it to you. Somebody chooses what your value is. You choose what your value is. What that means, though, is if you have no value and I have no value, then justice is just what I want it to be or just what you want it to be. 
All right, hang on, think of this. If there is no God, the moment one biology tries to hold another biology accountable for their actions, we've appealed to justice. But if there's only the laws of physics and chemistry and biology and nothing else, we can't have justice. In order to have justice, you have to have some sort of outside force greater than the laws of physics. And there is no greater law than physics. So the law of value is an illusion. You've heard folks say, I have my truth, you have your truth. You tolerate my truth and I'll tolerate your truth. You've heard that, right? No sane person says that about justice. No sane person says, I have my justice, you have your justice. You don't impose your justice on me and I won't impose my justice on you. No sane person does that because what happens if they commit a crime against you? Do you want justice? Of course you do, but but if you're an atheist, there's no justice. It's predetermined. Now that's all new Atheism. That sounds great, doesn't it? Now, let me give you three tenets from old atheism, which we put together. It's the six tenets of atheism. Number four, something came from no thing. All right. Miss Yvonne likes that one. Now, as Christians, we believe that, but we believe that God was the cause of that no thing coming from something. Something came from no thing. But but, um, atheists don't believe that. They don't know what happened before. Now, everybody pretty much agrees that there was a big bang. There's a point in time because we studied this in our small groups back in the fall. You know, there's this acceleration in the universe and there's all of these different things, red light, all of this stuff that that we we can scientifically look at and we see that the earth had a beginning point. Atheists can't tell you what's before that. So Richard Dawkins, he even says this, Richard Dawkins. Cosmology is waiting on its Darwin. So what he's saying is, we don't know how we got here and we really need a good theory. We're waiting on Darwin, all right? Number five, first life emerged with no life, with no help. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a minute because this this is one of the greatest quotes from an atheist I've ever heard, but I'm going to come back to that. See, without an intelligent designer, you believe that lifeless things somehow came to life on their own, or I guess it was predetermined by whom? We don't know. Number six, natural selection is responsible for all of life. In other words, Darwin tells us how we got to this point. He can't tell us how we got here in the first place, but he tells us how we got here to this point. Now, here's one of my favorite quotes. And if you can, if you can explain this to me, please do. Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion. Think about it on one planet and possibly only one planet in the entire universe. Molecules that would normally make nothing more complicated than a chunk of rock. A rock. Gather themselves together into chunks of rock-sized matter. So how did the chunk of rock... I I don't know. They gather themselves together into chunks of rock-sized matter of such staggering complexity that, that they are capable of running, jumping, swimming, flying, seeing, hearing, capturing, and eating other such animated chunks of complexity capable, in some cases, of thinking, feeling, and falling in love with yet other chunks of complex matter. Then here's the most astonishing statement. We now understand, essentially, how that trick is done. He's talking about Darwin. We now understand how a rock decides to combine with another rock and become John Colander. It's Darwin. You're a rock. I think it's safe to say that your struggles with religion 
with faith have nothing to do with atheism. It's not that atheism is so appealing. It's not that it's so awesome. It's because when you struggle with faith or people you love struggle with faith, it's because something happened to someone. Either something happened to them and they can't explain, they can't reconcile a good God with what happened to them. Or something happened to someone they loved and they can't explain that. What I'm going to argue over the next several weeks is that the God you lost or are losing faith in never existed in the first place. I'm going to argue that you had the wrong God. Start with the other one. See, a lot of people believe that there is no God, capital G. I'm going to argue that they had the wrong God, lowercase g. And that wasn't even the God revealed in the Bible. There's lots of gods out there. Jesus said there's only one way to heaven, but there's lots of different gods out there. So we're going to look at how Jesus revealed himself today. Um, In John, if you have your Bibles or your smartphones, you can turn to John chapter six. We're going to be way down there. It's a long, long chapter. But in the first part of the chapter, we read that Jesus fed the 5,000. Now, when he did that with just a loaf and and some fish, a couple of loaves and a couple of fish, um, his popularity was at an all-time high because people thought, this guy can feed me. They're out in the wilderness. He feeds them. They think, this is awesome. So if I'm a little short on my paycheck at the end of the month, Jesus can make up for it. Here's one egg. Make me an omelet type deal. That's awesome. Jesus can heal people with the word or a touch. That would be awesome. No more waiting in the ER or at the urgent care like I did the other day. You know you're sick when you go to urgent care and the floor looks good. I was sitting in the chair and I was just, I was hurting all over. Didn't know I had the flu. I thought I might have the flu. They swabbed me. Yes, I had the flu. The floor looked really good. And I just wanted to lay there. If you have, if you have Jesus as your King, you don't even have to go to urgent care. Hey King, heal me. So this was a good deal. We wouldn't have to work for food. He could multiply our food. He can heal us. He's a great public speaker. Let's make him King. There's only one problem with that. Jesus never came to be a human King. Just before his crucifixion, he told Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So after feeding all those people, Jesus sends his disciples to the other side of the lake. He goes up on the mountainside to pray. And then the next, then he joins them. The next day, the people who'd eaten the Hebrew happy meal, they're running around going, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? They can't find him. They realize he's gone to the other side of the lake. So he goes, they go to the other side of the lake. Jesus is just about to preach a sermon. He looks up and sees the crowd coming. He says, I know why you're here. You want more physical food. And then he, he makes this jump to spiritual food and, and they totally miss it. Uh, they're still thinking about physical food. So look how they miss it. Here's what they say in, in verse 30 of John chapter six, they replied, the people who were looking for the food, you must show us a miraculous sign. If you want us to believe in you, hold on. Didn't he just feed 5,000? And in those days, they only counted the men, 5,000 men. There were probably women and children. There could have been 10,000, could have been 15,000 people. Jesus fed weren't, wasn't that a miracle less than 24 hours. It was such an impressive miracle. They wanted to make him King 24 hours, actually about 12 hours. We're probably at breakfast or a little after Jesus. You must show us a miraculous sign. If you want us to believe in you miracles only addict you to more miracles, not to God. You must show us a sign if you want us to believe in you. What will you do for us? So it's the what's in it for me crowd, which is in a lot of churches, I gotta tell you. What's in it for me? What's in it for us? After all, our ancestors ate manna while they journeyed through the wilderness. As the scriptures say, Moses gave them bread from heaven to eat. <clears throat> now these these folks bring up a hero of the faith, Moses, old Mo, big Mo. And he's a big deal in in their faith. 
Now, remember, we just studied the life of Joseph over these last three weeks. 400 years after Joseph, Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery. They go into the wilderness. They're wandering around in the wilderness. And, and they need some food to eat. They cry out to God. And God puts this stuff on the ground. So every day they would get up and they would see this stuff. It was a wafer-like thing that was on the ground. And the first time they saw it, you remember what they called it? What was it called? Manna. You know what that literally means? Y'all have heard me say this before. It literally means, what is it? They'd never seen anything like this before. We have Cheez-Its, they had Watsit. And these guys, these guys said, Jesus, I'm not making this up. They said, Moses gave us Watsit. What are you going to do so that we'll believe in you? If you can top Watsit, we'll believe in you, Jesus. Look what Jesus says. Jesus said, I assure you, Moses didn't give them bread from heaven. My father did, and now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life into the world. Now, what Jesus said here is total truth, but it is not politically correct. Jesus says, point of order, it was not Moses who gave you bread. What's it? It was my father. Now, they didn't like that because you didn't diss Moses. They're really not going to like what he says next. Jesus replied, verse 35, I'm the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry again. Those who believe in me will never thirst. Jesus said, you want food that lasts forever, spiritual food that lasts forever? Was he talking about physical food or spiritual food here when he's talking about food that lasts forever? Spiritual. He says, I'm it. But the, uh, they didn't make this distinction. Look at verse 38. Jesus said, for I have come down from heaven to do the will of God who sent me not to do what I want. They don't get it. Verse 42. Then the people began to murmur in disagreement because he said, I am the bread from heaven. They said, this is Jesus, the son of Joseph. We know his father and mother. How can he say I came down from heaven? They must have been really hungry because they were not listening. They said, heaven? No, he came from Mary and Joseph. He didn't come from heaven. What he said next shocked them and caused them to doubt. Now, if you've ever had doubts, this whole sermon series is for you. I'm going to show you how we, how we learn and how we defend the faith. But I want you to read this and I want you to think about the hearers at that time. Verse 53. So Jesus said again, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink the blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. I am the true bread from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever and not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the what's it manna. Man, it wasn't such a big deal, Jesus is saying. They ate it. They still died. I'm offering forever spiritual food. But they're still thinking about physical. And when Jesus said, you must eat the flesh and drink the blood, how do you think they responded? I think his followers went, uh, Jesus, ixnay on the eshflay. Ew. Because they're thinking, big crowds, good. Drinking blood, bad. But he wasn't talking physically. He was talking spiritually. And they had to look at him and think, what in the world is God doing? You ever thought that? You ever wondered what God was doing? If he was doing anything in your life? God says something you don't understand. You're going, "Ah, I, I have some doubts about that, God. God doesn't do something the way you think he should. And you, you begin to have this big old fight. You have a bout with doubt. <clears throat> Every person who listened to Jesus that day had seen him work miracles. He had power like they'd never seen before. So much power that, that 12 hours before they said, let's make him king. 
Then he says one thing they don't understand and people bail. They turn and they start running. Well, if you've ever uh, struggled with doubt, then I want to give you some, some things that you can use. And, and I want to, to show you how you can have a DTR. Now, if you've ever been in a relationship, DTR could stand for define the relationship. Janie and I had a couple of those. Um, we've had a couple of those recently. Um, it's good. If you're married, you should always have DTRs. But I don't mean to define the relationship. Whenever somebody says something that causes you to, to think, oh, I'm not sure how to defend that, I want you to have a deliberate, thoughtful response. That's what DTR is. So how how to have a deliberate, thoughtful response. The first thing is don't obsess over questions. I get through this. Don't obsess over questions. Verse 60. Even his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept it? The disciples saw him every day. They lived with him. And they still didn't understand everything Jesus said and did, but they didn't hit the pause button. So here's what some people do. They have a question, they hit the pause button. Like you're watching your DVR, you hit the pause button. What is the problem if you leave it on pause? Do you ever get to the end of the program? No. And so when you pause, you're kind of like you're the dot under the question mark. I have this question about Jesus and I'm going to put my relationship on hold with Jesus. I'm not going to move forward until I understand this question. Now, I'm not saying that questions aren't important, but let me show you a couple of things. First, first of all, everything in life we do has a certain amount of uncertainty to it. For example, how many of you could stand up right now and explain to me how a DVR in your home works, whether you have Dish Network or whatever you have? Who wants to be volunteers? Jason Stevens isn't in here. He's the only one I know that could do that. Anyone else? Volunteers, volunteers. You don't understand it, but how many of you use a DVR? Let me see your hands. A few? Okay, we got a few. How about this one? How many of you understand electricity? Jeff's not in here. Oh, yeah, he is. There he is. Anybody else? Does, do you understand everything about electricity? Do you use electricity? Oh, I have... I have I have serious questions about electricity. So literally I'm going to camp out and not use electricity until I understand everything about electricity. Anyone want to volunteer? No. So, so you don't have to understand something to use it, right? Or to, to have faith in it. All right. What about, um, let's see, <laughs> explain to me how you can be underneath a cell tower from your company and have no cell signal. Can you explain that one? How about this one? <clears throat> Men, do you understand the opposite sex? Women, do you? No. Does that keep you from getting in relationships? Most of the time, no, right? Sometimes, yes. But most of the time, no. My point is, all of life has uncertainties and you don't have to understand everything in order to use something or to move towards something. On eBay, have y'all seen the, the feedback ratings? Right, so we buy some things off eBay sometimes. Sometimes I get more parts and I get all kinds of different things off of eBay. Well, when, when I'm on eBay, if somebody has a user rating of 50%, that means half of their orders are good and half of their orders are So like if somebody has a 50% eBay rating and they've been in business for a month, that means, you know, and they've sold two things, one person got their stuff, one person didn't. So you're, you, it's a 50-50 chance whether you're going to get your, your parts that you order or whatever you order from them, right? 
Now, if somebody's been on eBay for, let's say, a year and they have a thousand sales, 999 of them got where they went, where they were supposed to. It was the right price. It was the right product. And and they have a 99.9% user rating. That means 99.9% of the time you're going to get what you want. Which one are you going to trust more, the 99.9 or the 50%? 99.9. Okay. Here's what amazes me. Jesus has a 100%. Rating. Yet people will hear something from a Richard Dawkins or a Stephen Hawking and they'll put their faith in him over Jesus. This, I don't understand that because Jesus, the only one I know of that, that died, conquered the grave, came back to life, never to die again. Christopher Hitchens died. Richard Dawkins is going to die. Stephen Hawking's going to die. Doug's going to die. I'm going to put my faith in the 100%, not in the less than 100%. Does this make sense to you? So all I'm saying is questions are okay. We welcome questions. Jesus welcomes questions. Let me show you in a minute what you do with those questions. Second thing is to have a deliberate, thoughtful response. Don't bolt or run away. Don't bolt before the breakthrough. I just alliteration. I was struggling this week. Don't bolt before a breakthrough. Can anyone tell me what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes in this, in this sermon? Justin thinks he can because he's got a transcript, but he should know by now that sometimes that transcript doesn't mean Jack. I know that's right. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I spent two days doing nothing. Except watching Law and Order because that's the only thing good that was on. So I'd watch about 16 episodes and then I'd crawl back in bed and then I'd get up and watch some more Law and Order. <clears throat> okay. Anyway. Um, if you can't predict what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes, how can you possibly predict what's going to happen the rest of your life? If Jesus was God's son, if he died on the cross, we're celebrating that in just a few weeks on Easter. If he rose from the grave never to die again, shouldn't you wait until he shows up to, to tell you what's going on in your situation? You can't fully understand what's going on in your life until you've heard from God. So give him an opportunity. This is the difference between Peter and Judas. The craziest, most doubt-filled time in history was when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, died on Friday and they didn't understand it. Judas took matters into his own hands, killed himself before Jesus rose from the dead. Peter didn't. Which one do we consider a pillar of, of Christianity And which one do we consider a complete failure? Peter is a pillar because he waited on Jesus to show up and give him context. Judas didn't. He died. We assume Judas is in hell. There's stories in the Bible, all kinds of stories of what might have been. You got to give God the opportunity to show you this. Look at verse 66. At this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. The same people who wanted him to be king less than 12 hours later want want to run away from him. Every time you walk away from Jesus, you're walking towards something else. We've talked about um, atheism as that other something else. Verse 67. Then Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you going to leave too? He knew they were looking around. Huge crowds are leaving Jesus. He looks, are you going to leave too? Whenever your faith gets hit in the gut, you've got to let it be an alarm that says something is about to happen. Your, Your doubt can have incredible clout if you wait until Jesus shows up. 
Now, Jesus could have told them the future. He could have said, hey, Pete, James, John, your, your writings are going to be part of the most incredible book in history, the, the greatest seller of all time. That'd be good to know in, up front, right? It would also require no faith. And Jesus knew that breakthroughs in our relationship with him happen after periods of doubt. You know how, how many times I have, I've gone home. We've, I've been doing this for 15 years, uh, new life for 15 years. Several times in, in those 15 years, I've gone home and said, I'm a complete failure as a pastor, as a leader of a church. I don't know how to do it. I'm in, incapable of doing it. And I would, I wanted to quit. And every time I've wanted to quit, Jesus will get my attention. He'll say, what are you going to do? Mow lawns? Because that's a lot of fun. I mean, I, I mow lawns, but that doesn't have a lot of purpose. It just helps me go on more cruises. <laughs> Jesus always comes to me and says, where are you going to go? And I said, I don't know. And that leads me to the next one. To have a deliberate, thoughtful response. Consider the alternatives. Simon Peter replied, Lord, to whom would we go? You alone have the words that give eternal life. We believe them. We know you're the Holy One of God. Basically, Peter's asking, is there a better place? And he says, no. So when you have doubts, place Simon says. What did Simon say? Where would I go, Lord? I've got no other place to go. When I'm tempted to quit, I think about what would I do? God's called me to build a different kind of church, to be a different type of Christian. I think about a different road. If I don't want to be on that road, I better stay on the road that God has called me to be on. Philip Yancey's written a lot of books. He's a Christian. He's written a lot of books. Uh, one's called Where's God When It Hurts? Another one's called Disappointment with God. Here's what he said. The only thing more difficult than having a relationship with an invisible God is having no such relationship. See, if the local church is the hope of the world and I turn my back on the local church, I've turned my back on the one who founded that church, who's Jesus Christ. If I want to be a part of things that change the world and change history, I can't walk away from Jesus without walking towards something else. Fourth thing, to have a deliberate response. Remember history. Notice how it's spelled. History is his story. So think about Jesus. Think about the empty tomb. Think about why he came. Think about the verses in the Bible. Think about the victories in your life. Here's one from Psalm 77. I will remember your great deeds, Lord. I will recall the wonders you did in the past. I will think about all you have done. I will meditate on your mighty acts. When you don't know what to do, do what King David did. He remembered everything God had done before. Think about the circumstances that brought you to Christ. Think about the victories that seem to come out of nowhere. Look at the blessings of God and speak them out loud. Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He welcomes honest seekers. He has no patience for spiritual snobs who think they've got it all figured out. Before David fought Goliath, do you remember what he said? He told, um, he told the king, he said, I've killed a lion and a bear. This, this giant will be like one of them. He remembered how he said, God delivered me before God will deliver me now. Fifth thing. And this is, this is maybe, I don't know. All of these are important, but this one really spoke to me. If you want to have a, a deliberate, thoughtful response, go where the faith is. Faith in John chapter six is not a noun. And in fact, I get kind of upset when people say my faith, my faith, my faith, as if it's a noun. James, the half-brother of Jesus, said that faith without works is dead. 
Faith is a verb. It is something you do. There is evidence through your actions that you believe in something. Go where the faith is. I totally admire people who have questions and they seek out answers. They don't camp out under those. They, they read books, they ask questions. And every time they do, it's kind of like they're on a treasure hunt because they are, they're on a spiritual treasure hunt. And every time they discover an answer, their faith in God gets just a little bit stronger. It's almost as if God designed us this way so that part of your journey drives you towards him. One of the most famous doubters in the Bible is Thomas. You remember, and, and you'll, you'll probably read this story if you do any devotional in the next few weeks. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, Thomas wasn't around and, and he said, I'm not going to believe it. Unless he shows up and I can, I can put my, my fingers in the nail holes in his, in his wrists and I, unless I can touch where the spear got him in the side, I'm just not going to believe it. Do you know where Thomas was when he was doubting? With other believers. He was doubting in the right place at the right time. And you know what happened the next time Jesus showed up? Thomas was there. And there was not an ounce of condescension from Jesus. He just said, hey, Thomas, here's my hands, here's my side. And he says, oh, my Lord and my God. Doubt will either drive you closer to God or it'll drive you farther away. (coughs) And depending on how much time you spend with other believers when you're doubting, I can predict whether your faith is going to grow stronger or weaker. See, God designed the church so that a bunch of imperfect people come together and we open up and we share, well, here's my question, here's my question, here's my question. As we work through those questions together, we grow this strong bond and we also grow closer towards God. It's this amazing thing happens week after week after week in small groups. Does a sword sharpen itself? Nope. If you doubt in isolation you will eventually walk away from God. So what we're saying is doubt together. It's okay. It's not the amount of faith that you have. It's the object of your faith. Some people here need to have a new object. (laughs) Putting faith in yourself, that's not good. Putting your faith in someone else, that's not good. Put your faith in the one who rose from the dead. Some of you need to give your life to Christ. You need to put your faith in that one. Some of you need to... um, be baptized. Some of you need to join new life. Some of you just need to keep coming back to this series for the next several weeks to see if God answers your question. And if he does, without anybody else even knowing what your questions are, what does that say about how great he is? Did you bow your heads? Father, we just want to tell you how much we love you. And God, we, we recognize that there's nothing about atheism that is so awesome that causes people to rush towards that. We have to confess that many times our churches have been so wrapped up in things that are not significant to you that we've actually caused people to turn their backs on you. Please forgive us for that and help us not to be that type of church. God, raise up an army of people who will, who will seek you with all their hearts, but will also seek lost people with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.